uh, with me into John that we read together earlier. We're breaking into a conversation we've been following on Sunday evenings, the conversation between Jesus and some of the leaders. There are various groups of people in, in the conversation. There are people who believe in him up to a point, others who are true believers. And then there are the Jews, that's how they're described. And we have to distinguish, of course, everybody who is, he's speaking to are Jews. But in John's Gospel, this label, the Jews, has to do with those who are the leaders, the religious leaders, especially the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's in his conversation with them, uh, which it gets into debating and, and even an argument at one point, it's in his conversation with them that he introduces the mark of a follower. What, is a, what does a Christ follower or a disciple look like? What is the hallmark of a person who follows Jesus? And what he says is that it has to do with the truth that Jesus teaches, the truth that Jesus is, remaining or abiding in them. In other words, they don't just give mental assent to truth. They don't just tick the box saying, well, I believe that. No, the word of Jesus is not merely a sound that passes across their ears, nor is it a word on a page. The word of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, is something that is admitted into the life. They not, not only do they profess to believe it, but they possess the word. They possess the truth in themselves. Uh, they are not only professors, they are possessors of the truth. And so the test really is in whether or not you or I possess the truth that is in Jesus. Because that's the only thing he has said up to this point that sets us free. It sets us free from the tyranny of sin. It sets us free from the tyranny of our own speculation and imagination. It sets us free from the pressure of society around us. Because until we are liberated by the truth of Jesus, then we are slaves to sin. That is, we're in moral bondage. And that keeps us from choosing Christ. It makes us resistant to his claims and alienated from his company and friendship and fellowship. So that I can say to you this evening that if you sometimes feel yourself somewhat turned off of Christ and Christianity, you need to know that that would never take Jesus by surprise. He tells us that that is part and parcel of our humanity. Well, he is talking to these religious leaders. And in verse 37, you notice that he picks up on something that they have been saying. In verse 33, they said to him, we are the offspring of Abraham. They were not simply telling Jesus their genealogical position. They were actually boasting of the fact that they were linked to Abraham, the father of the race. Not only the father of the race, but the great believing man, the man who was once a pagan himself, a sun worshiper, who had come to know the living God and who had believed the promises of God and then in believing the promises of God had circumcised his sons 
as a, as a way of clutching on to the promise that through one of his male seed, all the world would be blessed. Abraham is the model believer. And they believed, they, they were descended physically, genetically from Abraham. But it went beyond that because it sounds like they were saying to Jesus, as they go on to put it in verse 33, because we are descended from Abraham, that makes us really a cut above everybody else. We've never been anybody's slave because we've always been semi-detached from everybody else, all the other forces and influences in the world. And surely being descended from Abraham puts us in a class, in a relationship with God, which makes us different from everybody else in the world. And what Jesus is doing as he speaks to these people is that he is stressing to them by his word he is exposing them to them the contradiction that lies at the heart of their religious profession we are descended from Abraham in fact he wants to press further he wants to expose having exposed that contradiction to go further and to show to them that there is an infinite moral distance between them and the God that they profess to believe. So Jesus says to them, verse 37, I know, I know that you are of your father, that you are the offspring of Abraham. Don't I just know that? I mean, you're, you're Jews, you're the Jewish leaders. Of course you are. That's, you know, you've been circumcised. You have the marks of uh, Israel and Abraham on your body, you fellows. Yet, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth and heard it from God. You seek to kill me. Look at verse 37 again. Because my word finds no place in you. He's just told them, the mark of someone who really knows God is that the word of Jesus dwells in them, abides in them, remains in them. He says to these men, my word finds no place in you. Later on, in verse 40, he goes on to say this. I know that you're Abraham's children, but if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. He is distinguishing, you see, between them and their response to Abraham's seed, the promised one that Abraham had looked forward to with such keen anticipation and longed to see his day, as Jesus will say later on in this discussion. And what they're wanting to do is the very opposite of what Abraham did. Not only will they not take the word of God through Jesus, not only will they believe God as Abraham had done, they want to kill. They want to kill the very one that Abraham looked to and trusted in and waited for. Because Abraham believed God. And Jesus says to these people, this is not what Abraham did. You are doing what your father did. He's introducing 
a little bit of an upset here that he's going to develop as we go. And he, what he's saying to them is, your relationship with God is defined by obedience, not biology. Abraham believed God concerning the offspring that was to come that would save the world. And you're rejecting the very one who comes to speak the word of God to you. Now you see, that offended them, of course. You can see that in their, in their response. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. They, they turned the spotlight from Abraham onto God. And they use this little expression here. We were not born of sexual immorality. Now there's a couple of ways we could take that in their way of using, using it. You can guess that this is what they were getting at perhaps. Maybe they were making a kind of subtle innuendo about Jesus' parental background. Maybe they knew there was a bit something a bit dodgy really about uh, Mary having the baby when she was a virgin and so on. Maybe therefore they're denigrating Jesus' claim to have that God is his father. We have one father. And therefore they were implying that Jesus did not have a legitimate human father and were staking their own claims to be sons of God. Very often that's what people do, isn't it? When they're attacking you. If they have no, no argument, no strong or convincing argument, and if they have no moral courage to confront you, very often what they do is they attack your character. They go for your character when they can't argue any other way. Or, that's one possibility. The other possibility, I'd like to give you some possibilities on Sunday evenings uh, so that you've got something to think about um, to keep you awake. It may very well be that they were also saying or denying that there was any pagan blood in them. They were descended from Abraham. They were purebreds. They were thoroughbreds. Israel was God's creation. Israel was God's covenant partner. Israel was God's people and God was their king. We belong to Abraham. So what does Jesus do? Verse 42, verse 42. He rejects both their appeal to Abraham and their claim that God was their father. He said to them, verse 42, If God were your father, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. Here I am. God sent me. Here I am. I'm right in your midst. I came not of my own accord, for he sent me. Here is Jesus speaking in his humanity, by the way. He's speaking in his human nature. And in his human nature, he has been sent by the Father into the world. And so therefore he won't let them claim either Abraham or God himself. That must have really shocked them. I mean, there were verses in the Old Testament. The idea of the fatherhood of God is found in the Old Testament where God says, for example, Israel is my firstborn son in Exodus 4. And in Jeremiah 31, God says, I am Israel's father. So it isn't common, but it is there. But Jesus says to them, God is not your father. Because if God were your father, you would love me. God is the father of Israel. But not everybody who, who is part of Israel belongs to the Israel of God. Not everybody who professes to be a follower of the living God actually even knows God. The Apostle Paul will, will tease this out in 
Romans chapters 9 to 11, when he says, you know, there's an Israel according to the flesh, and there's an Israel according to the spirit, and there always was a remnant of believers within the body of Israel. Jesus is saying to these men, you're not part of that remnant of believers. And he goes on to tell them, you see, the true sons of God and daughters of God show their love for God by hearing and obeying the Son of God. And not rejecting him, not persecuting him. The explicit criterion of being descended from Abraham as a man of faith and being related to God as their father, look at this, Jesus says, is love for him. If God were your father, you would love me. If you were really related to Abraham, you would love me. Jesus makes loving him the key distinguishing mark among humans of their relationship with God. And he goes on to tell them, verse 43, what their fundamental problem was. He says, why don't you understand what I say? And he gives them the answer. He says, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. It, it isn't that Jesus is a bad communicator. It is that their ears are stopped and their eyes are blinded to the truth. This was the crux of Israel's problem. We've been studying Isaiah. You go back to Isaiah and there in that great vision in chapter 6, we find God saying to Isaiah, look, there's going to come a curse, of, a, a, a war upon Israel, and this is what's going to happen. They will see, but they won't see. They'll hear, but they won't hear. They won't understand. The fall has left people, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, it's left everybody morally impotent and unable and unwilling to come to the Word of God because they have no taste for the things of God. They do not want to hear from God. And this is the final, I think here is the final answer, what Jesus says here, to those who are always agitating within the church for a dumbing down of the Christian faith to make it more accessible to the outsider, make it simple so that it's clear to the outsider, making it attractive so that people outside want to look for it, want to find it. The reality is, Jesus says, you cannot bear to hear my word. By nature, people do not want God. They don't want God in all their thoughts. By nature, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We do not, by nature, want anything to do with the, the God who is there, or want any part of his word. By nature, we are allergic both to God and to his word. And the default setting of the human heart is to get rid of God's Messiah in particular. Whether we kill him, or whether we marginalize him, or whether we keep him in a box, or confine him to fancy buildings on street corners, whatever we can do to get him out of the way and effectively get rid of Jesus. That's why Jesus said to another one of these religious leaders, a man called Nicodemus earlier in this gospel, that what he needed was a change of disposition, a radical rebirth from heaven itself before anybody could respond to the word of God and see or enter the kingdom of God. 
So here's the issue. What does it mean when anyone, Jew or Gentile, rejects Christ and seeks to get rid of him? Jesus tells them, verse 44. This is the punchline. They weren't ready for this one. You are of your father, the devil. They knew who the devil was. The devil was a fallen angel, perhaps the greatest created being that God ever made, who sparked a rebellion in heaven itself, brought down with them perhaps a third of the angelic beings that we now call demons, fallen angels. The devil makes his appearance in the Garden of Eden, disguised as a speaking serpent. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. So that when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Here's what he's saying. If you knew God as your father, you would love Jesus. You don't love Jesus, hence you are of your father, another father, the devil. Now before we proceed, we have to, another issue that we have to address right at this point. Because uh, we need to ask the question whether these dialogues represent what Jesus actually said, or whether they're reflective of John, who's writing, John's only uh, own anti-Semitism. That's a charge that's been made. Now, John himself was a Jew, but some charge him uh, with anti-Semitism here. Uh, from the misunderstanding that when it refers to the Jews in verse 31, it's talking about all Jews. Now, let me say that I am personally opposed to any and all forms of anti-Semitism. I am personally opposed to any and all policies designed to isolate and endanger the state of Israel in the Middle East. I had an uncle, Presbyterian minister, who for many years worked as a missionary to the Jews both in London and in Glasgow. And I come from Scotland where the leaders of the Free Church of Scotland, Presbyterian Church in Scotland, like Robert Murray McShane, supported the establishment of Israel as a home for the Jews as early as 1839. I also realized from reading the Bible that the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. But I'm an also ram. That my connection is only with Israel is only that I have been adopted into the Israel of God and that the Israel of God comprises of believing Jews and believing Gentiles. Liberal scholars like Richard Hayes critique John's gospel for adopting a stance that breeds hostility and anti-Semitism. But John is not the only one to blame, first of all. For example, the language John uses here, or Jesus uses in John towards the Pharisees, is almost universally negative in all four of the gospels. I mean, he calls them a brood of vipers, for example, in Matthew. Hypocrites in all of the Gospels, blind men, Matthew 23, whitewashed tombs, in Matthew 23 again, and children of hell. He didn't like the Pharisees. 
And this intense indictment of most of the Jewish leadership of his day is pervasive. It's not just a quirk of John, it's pervasive in all of the Gospels. Secondly, Jesus spoke of all unbelievers, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, as sons of the devil. For example, in the parable of the, <clears throat> of the weeds, he describes the growth of the church and the end of the age. And he uses this analogy, the field is the world, the good seed are the sons of the kingdom, the weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the harvest is the close of the age. And he's saying that in the world and in the church, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one are intermingled and grow together until harvest. Unbelievers even in the church, as there were in Israel. And thirdly, Paul teaches plainly, Paul teaches plainly, that all under, unbelievers are in the sway of the devil, the god of this world. The devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers. All unbelievers, including us before we became Christians and were rescued by his grace, were children of wrath and were dead in our trespasses and sins. So the whole New Testament, not just John's Gospel, season the ongoing resistance to Jesus, whether it's Jews or Gentiles. It sees the deadness and the blindness of sin and the accompanying work of Satan. Fourth, in John's letter, later on in the New Testament, he makes a clear distinction between being that, that being of the devil is not a mark of Jewishness, but a mark of bondage to sin and unbelief. In 1 John 3, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, whether they're Jew or Gentile. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus is making particularly particular what was generally taught that all humanity when it comes to believing the lie and opposing God's Messiah, he says to them, you're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do the father's, your father's desires. He's not using this expression as invective. He's telling them the truth. He's trying to open their eyes to the reality of their position. He's saying to them that their rejection of his word and their rejection of him is in fact an impulse derived from the devil. And they cannot therefore be Abraham's children or God's sons because what they want is not what God wants or what Abraham wanted. Their rejection of the truth and their bloodlust, we know already about this in John's Gospel, they're aiming to get rid of Jesus. Their bloodlust came straight from hell itself. So what does Jesus say then about the devil here? He tells us two things, that the devil is a deceiver and a destroyer. That's how he's introduced right at the very beginning of the Bible. He appears in the Bible in the Garden of Eden as a talking serpent. I guess Adam and Eve wouldn't be surprised by anything that happened. They were brand new. Everything was brand new. They wouldn't be surprised by a talking serpent because they knew that God could do anything. So he comes and he talks to them. And uh, what does he do? He introduces error and falsehood. 
If you know the story, you'll know that first of all, he distorts the word of God. God had said that they would surely die if they ate of the one fruit. Given them everything except one fruit. If you eat of the one fruit, you will surely die. And then he contradicts, Satan contradicts God's word and says to the woman, you will not surely die. And through his lie, and her believing that lie, and Adam giving credence to that lie, the whole race of humanity is brought down into death, and death has reigned since Adam, the New Testament says. Well, like these leaders, Satan's goal from the beginning was to kill, to wound the promised seed, the promised offspring. Remember at the gates of Eden, God says to Eve, with Adam listening in, I'm going to resolve this issue. I'm going to give you an offspring somewhere down the road. There's going to be an offspring from you who will crush Satan. That's going to happen. Satan will wound him, but Satan will be crushed. And from the very beginning, all hell has been aimed at destroying the seed of the woman that is Christ. That's why Jesus explains. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Satan's lies, his deception, is still the way in which he seeks to wound Christ. He tries, tries to, to draw Christ's people into deception, into false ideas and false ideation. In fact, Jesus says that this opposition between Christ and Antichrist shapes the history of the church. He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the seat of Satan, shall not prevail against it. Now there are two things being taught, said there. One is, Satan is doing his hardest to prevail against the work of Christ in his church. He is bending all his energies to bringing the church of God off the rails, to, to bring it down into cul-de-sacs of, of teaching that are taking it nowhere, of diverting the church into things that are false. He, he is active all the time. In the book of Revelation, and we don't have time to look at it this evening because I'm going to let you go early. I shouldn't really tell you that. In Revelation chapter 12, we find the, the little serpent is now this massive dragon. Satan has grown in his strength and his power with the passing millennia. And now he's this massive dragon who's, in the imagery of the book of Revelation, he's kind of hanging around in the maternity hospital. And he's waiting for the woman to give birth to the child, that is, the, the Savior. That's the woman promised back in Genesis 3. And he's hanging around and he tries to capture the child just as it's born and kill him. 
but the child escapes. God takes the woman and the child, hides them, and he's frustrated. And Satan is cast down. Let me read to you from Revelation 12. He's cast down onto the earth. He was defeated, and there was no longer any place for him in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And there was the fall of Satan. Jesus, when he's preaching, when he's on earth, and he starts to preach the gospel, read this in Luke's gospel, as he's preaching the gospel, and people are... are, are saved from demonic powers. You read the Gospels and you find something you will not find today. You find in the Gospel that demons are everywhere and in everybody. They're all over the place. They're desperately trying to thwart the work of Christ. They're desperately trying to destroy Jesus and his work. And there is this massive outpouring of hell while Jesus is here. Nothing like that ever since. And Jesus, by his word, as he's preaching, demons are being expelled from people's lives by the very word that Jesus speaks. And Jesus says as he does that, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Satan is brought down. Revelation picks up that story. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. And then it defines who they are. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does that look like? That looks like a believing person to me. And they're now the object of Satan's desperate hatred. And how does he show that? He does that by trying to deceive us. About moral issues, about doctrinal issues, about God, about other people. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's either accusing you to yourself, telling you how bad you are. He's accusing your brother or your sister to you, telling you how bad they are. He's accusing God to you, telling you how bad God is. He's an accuser. That's his nature. He's a liar. He's a destroyer. Now, Jesus then moves to telling these people, what is the tragedy of unbelief? The tragedy of unbelief is this. Look, did you notice this? Because, look at the causal word there, because, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. In other words, my telling of the truth has the effect of you not believing in me. If the children of God love the truth so that they believe in Jesus. The children of the devil are characterized by lies. They are not willing to accept the truth and therefore they will not believe in Jesus. That's the nature of unbelief. And actually the big problem is not that people don't believe. The big problem is how come anybody believes? And that's been addressed a little bit in chapter 6 of John. The Father has to draw people. They have to be given to the Son by the Father. They have to be chosen by Jesus. There needs to be this divine initiative, this divine imperative, this divine and invincible power that draws them. Because unbelief by itself 
is invincible in the heart and mind of a person. So we're now at verse 46 and we're near the end. He says to them, Which of you can convict me of sin? You're questioning my word. But is there anything in my record, anything in my demeanor, anything in my background, anything, anything that you can point to, bring up, anything that you have ever seen that gives you cause to believe that there is any sin in me. The only way you're ever going to hear a minister of this church say that is when they're quoting Jesus. Because they can't say about themselves. In fact, the hallmark of Jesus' people is that they never talk like that. The hallmark of Jesus' people is, let me tell you, that they confess their sins. That's why we do it regularly in church together. We're reminding ourselves that we are a fellowship of pardoned sinners. We don't believe in religious perfection. There was a man who once came up to Charles Spurgeon at a train station and challenged Spurgeon for his preaching and said, you know, you, you're missing one great big plank of theological truth in your teaching, Mr. Spurgeon. You don't teach religious perfection. Spurgeon stamped on his toe. And the man yelled and screamed at him and Spurgeon said, there I told you, there's no such thing as perfection. So Jesus looks at these people and he says, Can any of you convince me of sin? That's extraordinary audacity. And it does set Jesus apart from the rest of humanity. This claim to perfection, to sinlessness, to impeccability has two aspects to it, really, in the life of Jesus. In the first place, Jesus was free from actual sin. That is, from actual transgression, from even consciousness of sin. Jesus never prays for forgiveness. Never. When he teaches his disciples to pray, he puts words in their mouth. They are to pray for forgiveness. He never does. Never confesses sin. Never acknowledges shortcoming. In fact, says that he does exactly what the Father wants him to do. Not only is there no actual sin, there is no inherited sin in Jesus. He doesn't inherit the corruption and guilt of Adam. In fact, he is able to say on another occasion, Satan has no foothold in his life. There's no, there is no, there's no point of weakness into which Satan can press a, a wrench so that he can use that as a lever to find a way into him. No, there is nothing like that. Nothing like that. No lust, no proclivity to sin, no possibility of sin rising from within him, from his holy heart. He is, in the language of those who knew him best, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate, separate from sinners. Which of you convinces me of sin? Not only was he able not to sin, he wasn't even able to sin. People have tried to find sin in Jesus. They, they think 
the only thing they come up with is when he goes into the temple and makes a whip and whips people and chases them out. But holiness in the Bible is not a soft thing. Holiness mustn't be mistaken for niceness. Holiness is intolerant of wrong. Holiness does not pass a blind eye over transgression. Holiness judges. Impeccability condemns. Jesus will say on the last day, if you're not for me, you're against me. Depart from me. He says to these people, is there anything you've got in me? If not, then know this. I tell the truth. Why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. There's a big test as we close this evening uh, for ourselves in terms of our relationship with God. I, I presume you're here tonight on this dreadful evening because you believe that God speaks through his word. But all of us, I think, again and again in our lives need to come back to this reality in our, to help us understand other people as well as understand ourselves. That if I do hear the word of God, if I do want the word of God, and if therefore I do love the Lord Jesus, that is the most remarkable work of God's grace. Thank him for it. And when you have friends who don't hear the word of God, don't love the Lord Jesus. Pray that God, by his grace, would do that remarkable miracle in them of opening their eyes to see, their ears to hear, their hearts to love, and their wills to receive. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening we've spent together. Thank you for uh, those who've been laboring to help us uh, open the place, warm the place, care for us as we uh, come in and go out again, choir singing to us, uh, musicians playing for us, and our soloists this evening. Thank you for all those who have taken part. We thank you, Lord, for fellowship with one another. We pray that during this week our hearts will be able to feed on this word, your word, and that we might grow in our love for the Lord Jesus. We pray in his strong name. Amen.